Welcome to FNT Bible Talk, where we're going through the Bible and showcasing God's glory through His unified story. I'm your host, Felix Birch. On this episode, we'll be talking about Exodus 13 through 27, Israel's deliverance, and the Mosaic Covenant. We also have a special guest, Rachel Carter. Hey guys, welcome to week six of FNT Bible Talk. To recap, we just want to go through last week's episode. So the first thing that we saw in last week was God's power to deliver the people of Israel from the bondage and slavery of the Egyptians through a bunch of plagues. And one of the most important things that we saw is in the last plague, which was the death of the firstborn, we saw the first Passover and how it was a beautiful picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And in chapter 13, we're going to pick up today. And really what 13 focuses on is a couple of things. But number one, 13 talks about the unleavened bread or the feast of the unleavened bread that Moses institutes here with God. And one of the big reasons, and I think it's significant about what God's intent and Moses is using this for, is that he calls it a day of remembrance, right? In verse 2 it says, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. And then I'll skip to a few more verses. 8 and 9 says, You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes. And the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And really what these verses are teaching us and and telling them is that they instituted this day called the Feast of Unleavened Bread to be a day of remembrance. Actually, it was a week long of remembrance of what God did. And it was really even the Passover would fall in in this time frame. But really it was for the people to teach the future generations about what God had done and how God had delivered them. And I think it's really important for us to understand is that God wants us to always remember what he's done in our lives. He even instituted feasts for these people to do that very thing. And even in the New Testament, there's kind of a picture of this even with communion. Jesus says, do this, break bread, drink this cup, and do it as often as you can in remembrance of me, right? And so even this this understanding of back in the Old Testament, they had these feasts and different things. It's the same for us today. God desires us to always recall what the gospel did for us and how Jesus came to the cross. So I think if we can learn anything from this, it's really important to look at is that God desires people to remember back and to give praise and to honor what he's done in our lives. And so I just think it's a simple, quick thing that we can look at that's really powerful. But quickly after that, we jump into a specific story right here. And this is one of the questions we looked into this week. And let me read verses 17 and 18 to you in this uh, particular passage. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistine, the land of the Philistines. Although that was near, for God said, least the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea, and all the people of Israel went up out of the land, and Egypt was equipped for battle. And so we ask this question in the things to think about section, how is God's character and God's love demonstrated as he leads his people the long way to the promised land? And I think this is really important because what we see here is God knew that his people were not ready. And I think in our lives, we understand God is trying to take us from point A to point B. And many of those times, it seems like there should be a logical way for us to get to point A to point B. Maybe it's a straight line or what we think is the quickest line. But God sometimes orchestrates our path where it's more like a zigzag line or a loop back and forth. But the reason being is because God desires to show us things about himself. And that's one of the powerful things about this this 
scripture, when you look at it, is if you start, and we will as we move along, we'll start seeing all the things that God revealed about himself along the path to the promised land that they would have not known and they would have not been ready to go into. But because God took them a longer route, because God took them away, they begin to know God. There was a covenant relationship established with God. They saw the provision of God. They once again saw more miracles of God in ways that they had never seen before. And so though that route may have not made a lot of sense to, in your logical mind, it is simply that God was bringing them that way so that they could know him better. And I think this is an important part for our own life. And then in verses 21 through 22, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them before the people. So here we see that it's also important to understand that even though God was leading the people the long way so that they could learn him and that they could be prepared for entering the promised land, he wasn't telling them just to figure it out themselves. But instead, we see here that God would send his spirit as a pillar of fire to guide them from Egypt to the promised land. So we see here that God is really leading them by a spirit and God's still doing the same thing with us today. Even though God may lead us on a path we don't understand from point A to point B, like that really happens a lot in our lives, y'all. He doesn't do so without directing our lives by his Holy Spirit. And isn't that a great comfort to know that God leads us into new places and allows us to know him more all along the way, and he is guiding us in every area. And another thing that's really awesome about this passage is just thinking about, it says that even though they had military might, they mm-hmm. like think about it. they had millions and millions of people they were not ready and so it's like their faith wasn't ready and god knew that the long route would prepare them so if they had gone before right away what was logical we have the military might we have the arms we have the ability because you got to think when they left egypt they didn't leave empty-handed they left with the riches so mm-hmm. i'm sure they had military weapons and all kind of things but it wasn't enough they had needed to know god they needed to know the one that was going to fight for them so rachel's going to jump in right now and share a little bit about exodus 14 for us Right. And so just like Felix was saying, and Becca as well, he's talking and she's talking about how the Lord is leading them, not what seems to be the logical way, but the long way. And so here we come in Exodus chapter 14, and God leads them right to the Red Sea. And I'm sure if you picture yourselves and you're in the just in place of the Israelites and you're there and you come to this, what seems like a dead end, and and you're approaching the Red Sea you would immediately think, okay, we're, we exactly. not only took the long yeah. way and now we're at the Red <laughs> Sea. Like this, this does not logically, this seems ridiculous. Why would mm-hmm. God lead us to a dead end? So it appears that Israel is caught in a trap, but it is a trap of the Lord's making. And the route they took was a terrible military strategy. As Felix was talking about, as soon as Pharaoh and the people hear of it, they regret their decision to let the Israelites go and they decide to go after them. But As we know from the outside looking in, God knew exactly what he was doing and that he was in control. In fact, Nehemiah 9.10 actually says that by parting the Red Sea, God made a name for himself, which remains to this day. Mm -hmm. And Isaiah 63.12 says that the parting of the Red Sea would bring God everlasting renown. So, of course, God saves the Israelites because he loves them, but also for his namesake and that his name would be known throughout the nations around them, which Psalms 106 talks about. So we come, they're at the Red Sea. It seems like this is a terrible strategy. And Exodus 14, 12 through 14, it says, Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? 
Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, and this is so, I love the scripture verse. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be Mm. silent. And so just like we're talking about the Lord knows what he's doing. It doesn't seem logical. It doesn't seem like a good strategy. And now Moses is telling the Israelites, okay, we're sitting here at the Red Sea. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. As the Israelites, I would I would immediately be thinking, okay, what are we doing? Standing here and doing nothing? That's our strategy. But God is about to fight for them on their behalf. And how beautiful is this for us as believers today that God does fight our battles. We see that numerous times throughout scripture. Um, And not only that he fights, but as scripture points out, he never loses and he is the only person who has never lost a battle. Mm -hmm. And so we come here and the scripture talks about this miracle that takes place. Moses stretches out his hand in verses 21 through 27. It talks about Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. Just picture this, y'all. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the Mm -hmm. sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. That's exactly what Moses told them that the Lord would do. Mm -hmm. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Okay, so when the Egyptian army tries to follow them, as we just read, the waters close in over them. And it's interesting to note, if you've listened to the previous podcast, Becca talked about the plagues and how each plague really that the Lord did for the Israelites was a direct challenge against the Egyptian gods set up Mm -hmm. at that point. And it's interesting if you study this to note that the Egyptian army was drowned at daybreak, which is when Ra, the Egyptian sun god, should have risen up to the Egyptians' army's aid. But as we all know, Ra was unable to save them. As it says in verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the Israelites are delivered. They're safe on the other side. And something that has meant so much to me recently in just reading this is that the western side of the sea, it represented slavery and bondage for the Israelites, but they passed through the waters of the Red Sea and became a free and liberated people on the other side because of what the Lord did and what he promised to them that he would do. So on the western side, they were slaves. On the eastern side, they're a liberated people. And what a beautiful picture y'all it's a picture of what is to come right this is what happened at the cross and resurrection on good friday we were slaves under the authority of sin and facing divine judgment but on easter morning we were a liberated people free from sin and free from judgment it is a beautiful picture just to think about that that god says you know 
I will fight. You just be silent. And it yeah. is the picture of the cross. Jesus took on the principalities of powers mm-hmm. and defeated them in our freedom. And so Exodus 15 starts in response to Exodus 14 at the end of it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful poetry, uh, a song that is written by the Israelites and Moses. And, he, and they begin to mm-hmm. sing the song. And we just want to look at it a little bit. We don't have time to look at every verse in it, but it's some powerful stuff. And so I'll just read verses. I think it's one, two, and three. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my Lord, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. I've always found this scripture so beautiful and encouraging because when you understand the horse and the rider and you understand what Egypt represented was bondage, but what they represent to us today is sin. We were bound to sin. And you look at this and it's like, God has triumphed gloriously through Jesus Christ over sin in our lives. And he has thrown sin into the sea. He has defeated sin and death. And so this song is so beautiful because it says, The Lord is my strength, my song. He has become my salvation. Jesus Christ has become my salvation because he threw sin into the sea. He defeated it completely and has no more power over me. What's interesting about this, these verses 1 through 18 is that the first five verses are a declaration of who God is. And it, and it teaches us about worship, right? It teaches us about how we, should we should worship, how we should worship God. It teaches that we should worship God because of who He is and not just what He's done. But the verses right after that do teach us some other things. So let me just read 9 through 12. The Lord said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. And so let me just back up. Obviously, this is what the enemy was saying. And I just think about that, how it is a picture of sin trying to come back and take us in bondage once again. And then God's response to that. So in verses 6 through 18, we see this, like Felix is saying, in the first few verses, 1 through 5, we see a declaration of who God is. And then in 6 through 18, we see a declaration of what God has done. And this shows us how to worship, y'all. We first and foremost worship God for who He is. But then there's so many miraculous things that He's done in our lives. How can we not worship Him for those as well? Mm -hmm. So this song speaks of so many things. God's glory, how God is personal, how God is a warrior, how God is unique, that there is no one like Him how God is loving, his salvation, and ultimately how he redeems. And so we see that this is a beautiful response. Right after they come out of the Red Sea, they choose to worship and praise God. How often should we do that in our lives? Right when God delivers us from something, we should, in response and faith, worship him, just like they did here. Right. And then in the next few chapters, specifically chapters 15 through 17, God has just delivered the Israelites. It is just a wonderful picture. They're singing songs of praise. Moses begins to sing this song of praise and everyone is joining in. It's just a beautiful atmosphere of worship to the Lord. And then as they're going about their journey, three days later, they are tired and they're hungry (laughs) and they're thirsty. And we see this pattern of grumblings and we see how the Lord is responding response to each one and it's absolutely Mm -hmm. beautiful y'all and then the first grumbling we see in chapter 15 is that um, verses 22 through 25 says they went three days into the wilderness and found no water 
when they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we going to drink? So the Israelites have just been rescued from Egyptian slavery in the most dramatic fashion. Y'all think about it. They've seen the hand of God parting the Red Sea, defeating the Egyptian army. They've sung, as Felix and Becca were talking about, the Lord is my strength and my defense. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. But all that was three days ago right? Today, they're thirsty, they're hungry, and they're grumbling. And y'all, when we think of it like this, the Israelites grumbling is ridiculous and inexcusable. But careful, think about your own life. Perhaps you sing of God's unfailing love on a Sunday morning. But three days later, or maybe three hours later for me, you begin to grumble. Think of all the things God has done for you. Think of all he has promised you. But think too how easily you lose a sense of perspective Think of how much better you are at seeing what you don't have than what you do have. I know that's true for my life. Mm-hmm. And all we see is bitter water. All we see is our problem or our lack. And we say, oh, Mara, my life is bitter. Right? But this is what's so beautiful. How does God respond to their grumbling? Okay, let's read the next verse. It says, Moses, okay, they're complaining to Moses and they're grumbling to Moses. And Moses says, he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. How awesome. So God responds to their grumbling with grace and with love. And not only that, we see in the next two chapters, right? They become hungry in Exodus 16. And God responds yet again with grace and with love, right? They have nothing to eat. They tell Moses that. And God gives them manna, this bread-like substance that falls from heaven. So he responds to their grumbling with more grace. And he even tells them if they store up any extra for days to come, the manna will go bad. So it's even like the Lord was just speaking this into my heart the other day, it's even like God is setting up a pattern of teaching the Israelites every day, each day, I want you to trust me with what I give you, right? And that's why Jesus says in Matthew six thirty four, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. So God doesn't give grace for tomorrow today. Don't worry about tomorrow. You're given grace for today. So trust God with your today, mm-hmm. right? And so this is also a picture of Jesus being the bread of life and him being the only one that can truly satisfy, which we'll see Mm -hmm. later on. But, and then in Exodus 17, we come to the third grumbling and y'all, this is, this is so beautiful to me. This is one of my favorite Mm -hmm. chapters in the reading plan this week, because it's just, it's such a picture of Jesus. Okay. And I really want to read it to you and bring it out. So in Exodus 17 verses one through seven says, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at, rep him, but there was no water for the people to drink. So again, they come to a place, there's no water, right? They're thirsty. Put yourself in their shoes. Therefore, the people quarreled or fought with Moses saying, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled, there's that word again, against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, so I really want to bring this out to you very quickly, right? So the Israelites have 
put God on trial yet again. The Israelites are on one side and God is on the other. And Moses is kind of like the mediator in between them. And we know that we know Israel is guilty and deserves to be condemned. We know that God is innocent and deserves to be vindicated. But God tells Moses, I really want you to see this. God tells Moses, strike the rock. The rock, which we just read, the rock of Horeb, where God is standing. I want you to look back at it. It's in verse 6. It is the most dramatic and surprising moment. Moses brings down his staff, which represents the rod of judgment, on God. God takes the judgment that his people deserve. And as a result, blessing flows to the people. And as the water comes out from the rock to quench the people's thirst. Y'all, that rock was Christ. We know that because in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, it says, For the Israelites drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So what happened at Massa was a picture of and a pointer to the cross. Mm -hmm. At the cross, the great court case, if you want to view it that way, the great court case between God and humanity came to its climax on one side was guilty humanity deserving condemnation and on the other side was the perfect sinless son of god christ the rock and god the father said strike the rock the rod of his judgment fell on jesus so jesus as we learn from these past few chapters is not only the bread who satisfies our needs but he's also the rock who bears our judgment y'all and what a picture of salvation it's so beautiful to me that is probably my favorite chapter i've read recently and What's significant about it too is I've always thought of it like kind of like a movie scene. You know, it's like here's Moses and you got the music in the background and he brings the elders. And as Rachel said, the rod or the staff, it represented judgment because he talked about how bring the rod that you use to touch the Nile, right? To turn into blood. And that was to pronounce judgment upon Egypt. And what's so amazing about it is, as Rachel already did such a well job explaining, is that when he hit Christ or when he hit the rock, he was essentially, it was a picture of how Christ took our our judgment, right? And how these leaders should have been the one beheaded. And, w- and when Moses called these men up and they would stand there, they knew what that staff stood for. Mm-hmm. They, they, it was not like they were sitting there like, oh, okay, well, we're just waiting for roll call. No, they, when they saw Moses on that rock and he had the staff in his hand, they knew we're about to be judged. And then with the most surprising move, instead he strikes the rock. But what's amazing about that passage too is it's not just that he struck the rock, but it's what came out of the rock, mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And, and I think about that even in the New Testament, that Jesus' crucifixion, yes, he took our sin and our judgment, but it wasn't just that. In taking our judgment and our sin and taking death and defeating sin, we receive life. And it talks about how water came out of the rock and they drank of it. And just like Jesus, who was crushed for our iniquities, who's, who's our, all our sins were upon him and our transgressions and such, we have now received a flowing river of life, right? We, we talk about those songs. I've got a river of life flowing out of me, you know, and it's just a beautiful thing that this is what, this is, this is what that passage is pointing to. It's pointing to Jesus and he's worth celebrating. And so we move on to chapter 19 and 20, and I want to explain a little bit more about this. And so I think chapter 19 is very important for us to understand what God is trying to do or what God does through the law. Really, the story of the Exodus really has a climatic moment in 19. It is is a powerful scene. It is a powerful moment between the people of Israel and God. And so I'm going to read to you a few scriptures from it. And so in verse 3, it says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what chapter 19 is really focusing on, it's focused on Yahweh setting the terms of his relationship between him and Israel. In other words, this is the place where Israel and God exchange their wedding vows one to another. It is where they talk and, and God explains to them, this is what the vow is going to be. This is what our wedding is. Because this is the moment where it's like this covenant comes together and God makes them his people in such a way where they're now in this covenant with them. That's powerful. And so really these verses, and, and particularly 3 through 6, it's super important for us to understand. It's a love language. It's a love thing. It's not just some lawful thing. And this precedes the law. That We have to understand this, that this precedes the law. God has confessed his love to these people. He's confessed how much I love you and I desire mm-hmm. you. But he does so before giving the law to them, mm-hmm. which I think is very significant because it shows us that that is exactly what God has even done for our own lives, right? With As a Christian today in the New Covenant, God sought us. Jesus Christ sought us out and loved us and saved us. And then we learn about the commands to follow that we that are in order that we follow Jesus, love these certain things and obey these commands. There are commands, but it's always and always has it been because God has orchestrated and pursued love first and sought his people out. And so with the law and the things that we're going to read about, is that it has never been Old or New Testament the means of salvation. The law was never the means for salvation. doesn't matter what dispensation of the Bible there is. But what it was for the law, for them, it was Israel's way to relate to God and to showcase Him to the world. And so it is important for us to understand, before we even look at the law, that God declares His love for them and His purpose for them. And so I want to point to these things for a second. And so just thinking about verses 3 through 6, there's a couple of things that God says to them. And number one, he says this, God calls Israel a treasured possession among all people. Y'all, this is love language, just very strictly, it's a love language to them. And this is what I think is so amazing, because what a title. God has told them, you are going to be my treasured possession. Like, out of everything I have, you're the most treasured possession. And I love you. Like, the creator of the universe makes this statement. And what's so powerful about this statement is that later in the Bible, we see that the people of God, they completely rebel and they, and they, they go off and they commit adultery, essentially or idolatry. And it's like they're having an affair away from God. And actually the prophets would even compare it to that very thing. And in those, those messages that the prophets would say, they'd always say, come back to the wilderness, come back or, or meet God in the wilderness. God would say, I want to meet you back in the wilderness. And it was this, I want to meet you back to the place where we exchange this wedding vow, where I called you my treasure possession and the love of my life. Right. And so we see this about Israel is that they are called the treasure possess- possession. But the second thing you also see is that he calls them a kingdom of priests. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Which simply mean a people that will worship and minister unto me and minister for me. And so it's like, what an honor. Here again, the creator of the universe saying, you're going to be the ones that are going to worship me and show godly worship and minister unto me and minister to the world. Um, This is what Adam acted as a priest. Adam acted as a priest in the garden. And this is exactly what he wanted um, for the people of Israel to be. And so you can start seeing from this moment on, you're going to, and you actually have already seen it, but several times you go through the Bible, it's almost like you're starting to see the pattern that God is beginning to restore some things in place to the garden. Because he's, again, he's always after that. He wants that again. He wants that relationship with man again. And so he's going to make this nation a kingdom of praise. 
The third thing we see is that he calls them a holy nation. He says that you will be a holy nation to me. And he says that you will, in a sense, they will bless the nations around them. Um, and that through them, there would be there would come the Messiah through this blessed nation. And so he's this privilege that Israel has. And he says, I'm making you all this not because you're great, but because I loved you. Right? He says that in multiple times in the Bible. But he declares all these things to him in such a powerful way. But what's so amazing about this is that, yes, these are the things that Israel got to receive. These are the things that they God blessed them with and called them to be. But it didn't stop there. But God expanded this to us, all believers, all Christians in the New Testament. And so this is what it says in 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9 and 10. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not his people, this is us, but now you are God's people. You're included in this. You are my treasured possession. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Christians today, likewise, we are priests. We are God's treasured possessions. We get to serve him and worship him. And we get to declare his excellencies to the world just as Israel got that opportunity to do. He has expanded that to us. Mm-hmm. And so what a powerful thing. You know, what an honor it is to serve God. Like that is an honor. Yeah. That is a powerful thing. And we shouldn't take it lightly and make it about our lives. But understand, man, we get to show forth the Lord's glory in all the earth. It's such a powerful thought. And so this chapter is really important because it sets up the law. It sets up for us to understand this was given before the law. The language of love, the, the, the covenant, the vows, this marriage type ceremony was committed in this way and then the law is given to them for them to see. And so uh, there's several things I want to talk about with the law just to bring it out. And so we're going to, I'm going to bring Exodus 20 through 24 and just kind of lump it together in a way. But I want to say why the law was needed, some things important about the law, the law and its purposes. And so number one, the law reveals and why it was needed is that it reveals the holy character of God to the nation of Israel. And it does. It showed Israel who God was and his character and the way he would act and the things he desired and wanted, right? And it does the same for us today, though. Even though we're not under the law like they were, we do understand God's character through the law. The second thing we see that why the law was important is that it set the uh, set apart the nation of Israel as a distinct people from all the other nations. And this is a really powerful thing, and I think it's significant because people look at the law sometimes and they judge it from the 21st century and they say, oh gosh, look how, look how ugly that is and how can God command this or that? But it, it, people don't understand the culture of that day. And so let me just give you an example. There's a law where it talks about how if a man were to take a woman and he sees her in a field and he takes her and he sleeps with her, that he is to marry her. Well, in that day when that would happen is that if that were to happen to any woman in the cultures around them, they would not. They were not demanded or commanded to marry this woman, and because that would happen to this woman, this woman would essentially have no future. She was discarded, y'all. She was, in in many people's eyes, just not even alive. She was just a piece of meat. And what God is trying to say there is that no, you take care of her. You take her under and you protect her. God, the lot of the laws that were given were laws to protect. They were, and so. For us, we have to understand that the cultures around them, they would have been in shock. Like, oh my goodness, your God commands that? 
Wow, he's so merciful. He's so much better than our gods or our law or, or the way we do things. And so the law was to show the world around them, look how, look at the wisdom of God. Look how wise God is. Look how much far superior our God is. Look how moral our God is. The third thing we see is that the law reveals the sinfulness of man. And this is really important for us today, right? Because we use the law as Christians, not because we obey it for salvation by any means. We're not under the law. But what we do understand is that the law does show man its sin, our sinfulness. And so when we even talk to people about their salvation and different things, you know, it's important for people to see that they've broken the law. And so the law is good for the lost man because it brings them under conviction. It shows them the fault. And so even then, the law revealed to these men, hey, we're sin, we're sinning, we're messing up. It's good, right? It, it wasn't just something to restrict, but it was to protect in many ways. The fourth thing that we see is that although the law was good and holy, its point was not to provide salvation for the nation of Israel. And we kind of already talked about this, but really what it was, it was supposed to show the conscience of sin. So it was supposed to make them aware of their sin. And that's really connected to the third thing in a lot of ways. The fifth thing we see is that the law was given was to provide God's direction for their physical and spiritual health. Israel was so much healthier than the nations around them because they had health laws or health codes, right, that were God gave them and physical ones too. And it's the same with our children, right? We tell our children, hey, don't put your hand on the stove. It's not that we want to put a law just to be, give a law. We want to protect them. We want to keep them safe. And so God knew, hey, you're going to do these things. It's going to end up not so good for you. So here's, some, here's the law to protect you. And then the sixth thing we really see, and this is what I think is the most amazing, at the, the law was given because God was holy. And in order for men to dwell with him, they must be holy too, which none of us are and none of them were for sure, except Jesus who came to fulfill the law, that whoever would have faith in him and in his obedience and righteousness, he would make them holy also. And that the righteous requirement of the law, like Romans tells us, might be fulfilled in Jesus. And because of that, his righteousness had been imputed to us. So the law was given so Jesus could fulfill it so that we could be made righteous. Look, look how much further in advance God is already thinking. Well, I mean, he's been thinking about it for eternity. This has all been within him in eternity. But he's already got this thing right here in the beginning of the Bible planned out like, hey, I'm giving the law and my son's going to fulfill it so all of you can be righteous because the law is not going to make you righteous, but he will make you righteous when he fulfills it because he's the only one that can because he's perfect. And so... These are just some of the things about the law. And next week, we're going to jump a little bit more about the law. We're going to learn a bit, little bit more with it. But we're also going to talk about the rituals. And that kind of deals more with the things in Leviticus. You do see some law there, but you see some rituals. And they go hand in hand. The law is not by itself, and the rituals are not by itself. And we'll look at that a little bit more. But we're going to close out this week in, from Exodus 25 through 27, which is really about the tabernacle and something that we saw this week. So in Exodus 25 through 27, just like Felix said, we see the tabernacle, um, the plans of it kind of come onto the scene. So in this, in these few chapters, Moses is talking to God on Mount Sinai when he receives the plans for the tabernacle. And I just want to read a little excerpt that we heard um, through Spoken Gospel, which is a ministry. They just put it so well. This is the tent in which God will dwell with his people as they journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land. God has always wanted to live with his people. That's what the Garden of Eden was for. And now in the tabernacle, God is making the first giant step in restoring the presence he had with humanity back in Eden. Basically, the instructions for how to build the tabernacle start at the center and they work their way out. The mercy seat in the Holy of Holies is the central part of the tabernacle. We can think of it like a king's throne. 
This is where God would appear and meet with his people. Next is the bread of the presence, which represents the 12 tribes. In front of that is the golden lampstand, which continuously shines on the bread. This was to be a constant testament to the fact that God's presence is with his people. Outside of the tent, in the outer court of the tabernacle, there is an altar. The altar is where sacrifices would be made. This reveals that people cannot just approach God as they are, but their sin must be dealt with through sacrifice. The temple is also sectioned off by curtains, and the more dense and ornate those curtains become, the closer one is to getting to the holy presence of God. This fact shows us that the closer people get to God, the more protection is needed. The structure of the tabernacle conveys one strong message. God is holy. He is set apart, glorious, and perfect which is what makes Jesus coming to earth so magnificent. Jesus fully dwells in flesh, but Jesus doesn't just fulfill the tabernacle itself, but every single part of the tabernacle. The actual Holy of Holies, because he is the actual presence of God. Jesus is also the bread of life who is present for his people. He is the light of the world that shines. He is the final sacrifice on the altar that allows us to enter into the holy place of God. At Jesus' death, the curtain covering the Holy of Holies was ripped open so that there would no longer be any separation between God and his people. And everyone who belongs to Jesus has now been turned into a little tabernacle in which the Holy Spirit dwells, and eventually Jesus will return and transform the whole world into a new and final tabernacle in which he will dwell with us forever. So I pray the Holy Spirit would give you eyes to see the God who is unapproachably holy, but still wants to dwell with his people, and that he would see Jesus as the one who made a way for this good God to come and live with us forever. Amen. And it is so significant about the tabernacles that the tabernacle was God in many ways bringing the people of God or reestablishing this presence with people. And we know that because the Garden of Eden, it was like a tabernacle. It was just perfect place where the presence of God abided. And then we see all of a sudden that God now brings the tabernacle on earth where his presence would abide. And so it's like God is slowly moving the people back into that until ultimately what we'll see at the end of the Bible where the whole entire new earth will be one gigantic tabernacle. And it's such a powerful thing. And so this is what God is after. He's always been after this fellowship with man. So thank you for listening to this episode. Rachel, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And I hope it blesses everyone. We love y'all, and y'all have a wonderful week. God bless. Thanks so much for listening. For more FNT Bible Talk, be sure to subscribe and visit fntchurch.org for more information.